Welcome to Caring for Caregivers, your life support podcast, where we explore what it really means to focus on our own mental health and well-being in the face of COVID-19 and other life challenges. I'm your host, Phil Rayner, and I've been working in the behavioral health care field as a social worker, serving in clinical supervisory and management roles for over 40 years. In today's session, we'll be hearing from Sarah Farmer, who's been working in the fields of trauma, mental health, and wellness for more than 25 years. She has a master's degree and is a certified trauma integration practitioner. She also writes for the Wellness Recovery Action Plan Program, helping others achieve and maintain wellness, and has written practitioner guidance for the National Center for Trauma-Informed Care, National Institute of Mental Health, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. She is a communications manager, the adoptive mother of a child with serious mental illness, and a disability advocate. In this episode, we'll discuss the extreme stresses of caring for others during a global pandemic while taking steps to maintain one's own sanity. Welcome, Sarah. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if you can share with us a little bit about the, um, the challenges that you have found yourself facing, addressing very difficult life circumstances during the pandemic, and just kind of fill us in a little bit about that. Sure. It's been difficult both because of the obvious reasons that we're all dealing with, but having a special needs child who's actually an adult, but a child mentally, having to explain the whole pandemic to her, and she's out in the community, she lives in supported living, so she has staff, she has a day program, and then she comes home on the weekends. And so we have a lot of people caregiving for her right now. And during COVID, that changes constantly because people are quitting, having to explain to her why she can't go places, why she can't have any social interaction. And then about six months into the pandemic, she got COVID. And so suddenly it was this life-threatening illness because she's immunocompromised and has asthma along with her serious mental illness and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So she came home because the staff couldn't take care of her with COVID. So then I was full-time caregiving again, 24-7, in addition to working full-time and trying to keep myself from getting COVID, which didn't work, as it usually doesn't. So then I was caregiving for myself, for her, and working full-time. And that incredible stress that people feel, um, and it gave me a greater insight into how direct caregivers feel, because no matter how they're feeling or how worried they are about getting COVID or then taking it home to their families, they're still expected to show up. And that stress is chronic. It never goes away. And so even if they're leaving work and going home, they still carry it with them because you don't know if you may be carrying it home to your family, like my child did. And she may have, she got it from one of her caregivers who then gave it to their whole family. And she was in the hospital for six months. So these things are frightening for everybody. And I just have such great respect for caregivers in every field who are still continuing to show up every day for these people that so desperately need help. They're amazing. I'm sure that they appreciate your, your observation on that. Um, as, you're, as you're describing it, it, it sounds like you really had your hands full. And, and it sounds like you were doing this um, as a single parent. Yes, I am a single adoptive parent. So I've done this my whole life by myself but I've generally not been sick while doing it. And I've had places to send her during the day. So doing that 24 seven, in addition to full-time work, yeah, it's incredibly hard. 
So how did you find yourself responding to those multiple challenges happening at the same time? I found that I was kind of resorting to my, my deep stress levels that I've worked through through time, but there's a lot of kind of PTSD feelings from times when she has overdosed or run away from home or nearly died and been in the psych ward. And I didn't know if she would ever come back from psychotic episodes. Mm -hmm. And so my neurological system just suddenly went back to those Mm -hmm. PTSD feelings where I just felt panicked all the time. Her oxygen will go down into the seventies and sixties. And suddenly I'm thinking my child's going to die. What do I do? And I'd start breathing heavily. I could feel my fight or flight kick in and I'd forget all of my training about how to calm down the nervous system. And instead I'd just go into panic mode. And so I had to practice my own medicine and taking care of her and try to find ways to not let my huge cortisol levels impact my care of her because then I just freaked her out when I'm like, breathe, breathe, lay on the floor, roll around. And then she thinks she's dying and that doesn't help anything. And so, you know, I don't know how caregivers do it all the time because they're dealing with people who are actually dying or in panic mode all the time, but it really can increase your own stress levels and feelings of, I don't know if I'm going to make this and kicking into that primal fight, flight, or freeze, which is really hard to work through when you're also trying to help someone else through it. I'm so glad you mentioned that even as a, a trained trauma specialist in that situation, you can still have that neurological response and, Absolutely. and, and all the good stuff that we know can get overridden. I think yes, a lot of times. Flies out. Yeah. yeah providers, it's an automatic you know, response. It's a survival response. Exactly. And, and, and providers often think that we should somehow not have that response. You know, we, yes. we've been trained, we know more, you know, we have information. And so it shouldn't happen, but it does. And it happen. does. We're human. It happens to everybody. No, no matter how well-trained they are, no matter how good they are, and it should never be taken as a sign that they have a weakness or they aren't as good as they should be, or why did I respond and the other caregiver didn't? We all have a different nervous system. We all have different past experiences that trigger us and lead us to stressors. And so comparing yourself to anyone else in that situation is so defeating because our triggers are not the same because we don't have the same lives, but we all have a breaking point. Every single person does. It's normal. Right, that's right, that it's human. You mentioned having like a trauma response, the fight or flight and freeze response, panic, all that kind of anxiety response. Were there any other responses that you noticed at the time? Or, I mean, this is, this is yeah. kind of over a period of time. So any yeah, other responses Yeah, it was, it was about up? two months that we were going mm. through this. Um, I found that some of my depression was kicking back in. This sense of hopelessness that will this ever change? Is this how our future is going to be forever? And do I want to live with this kind of future? And I had to work really hard to pull myself out of that kind of that darkness because I'm only spreading it to her or anyone else I'm around. And it wasn't doing any good at all, but it was hard not to take the whole world crashing down around us very personally and to still have hope in that. It's just a difficult thing, I think, for everybody right now. You know, will life ever be the same? And it may not. And if not, what's my new norm? And how do I still find happiness and peace of mind within it? Sarah, we have a uh, a mutual support meeting that gets together weekly 
for for behavioral health and healthcare providers around from Illinois around this Wonderful. issue. And that that topic came up just in our, our meeting yesterday. The question of how to have a open conversation and communication about how people really are feeling. That you know, we hear about numbers and statistics around rates of anxiety or depression mm-hmm. or substance use um, having escalated, and it's it's kind of intellectual and removed in that way. But people are really living through very difficult times and having to cope yes. with that. And there's not a lot of, or the perception has been that there's not a lot of discussion of what it means to really live through that, you know, and, and people were just talking in the meeting about how helpful it can be to just have opportunity to really talk about that and have validation for it. So I, right. I appreciate, you know, your observation about the reality of this and that we are human and we feel this. Yeah, we're all vulnerable and admitting that and having that connection with other people helps to just know that other people are scared too and that it's okay to be scared and it's okay to talk about ideas. That's not a weakness. It's just simply human life and us worrying about our futures. So what have been some of the strategies that you've been able to utilize to manage those, those responses? Um, well, at first, I just ate a lot of cookies and gained a lot of weight. So that was not a good response. <laughs> then I, I used, um, I write for the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, a program mm-hmm. of wellness that where you use a daily plan to stay well. So I went back to, it's called RAP. I went back to my RAP because I really wasn't following it. In my RAP, there's daily wellness tools that I need to stay well. And they're incredibly important. They're small, but when I don't do them, I start to slide into depression. I start to slide into my my worrying about everything. And when I got into that COVID zone and taking care of her, I threw that all out the window. I just sat, stared at my computer, streamed TV and ate ice cream and cookies. So I pulled it out and I forced myself to go do things that made me well. You know, like just going outside for even five minutes a day to see some nature driving to Starbucks just to stay high in the drive-through to a barista because you couldn't go inside. But because of my personality being extroverted, I have to have connections with people every day in person. It's just important for my mental health. And mm-hmm. I wasn't getting that during COVID. I'm, we're all stuck in our house and we were isolated. So even just that little bit in my car would help me mentally feel a little bit lighter. So then I could go and go do some of my other wellness tools, like my meditation. And I was so worried that I couldn't sit through a half hour meditation, but I could do a five minute meditation and just find that time. Even if it was in my bathroom, because my child had the TV on and was too loud, I would just sit there for that five minutes, put on a little meditation app to ground myself because that those grounding techniques for me have been so important in lowering my cortisol levels and just getting my perspective back to the present rather than focusing so much on the future. What if she dies? What if I die? What if we can never see people again? And instead just focusing on today, that mindfulness. And so those have really been my big things is focusing on self-care because if I'm not doing well mentally, I can't help her, I can't help anybody. And that's easy to forget and to just plow on through, especially as someone who's caregiver, been a caregiver their whole lives. We 
sometimes feel like we're not allowed to have hard times or not allowed to do self-care. We should always be taking care of someone else, but then we collapse at some point and then we're no good. So for me, it's really finding those little things every day and also having a support network. If I stop communicating with people, either through Zoom or a phone call or text, I get really depressed. I have to have connection to other humans. And that's made it hard in COVID, but sometimes we have to take that little step out of our comfort zone and do something we don't even want to do. Sometimes I think I'm too tired to call someone right now. I don't want a conversation. So I'll just text and say, just thinking of you, I'm having a hard day. And then having a little encouragement sent back to me really does make a difference. Just knowing someone out there cares about me. And so I think caregivers have to remember, we also need caregiving. That's a great point. I want to follow up on a couple of terms that you use that some people may not be familiar with. You mentioned a wrap plan. Can, can you talk a little bit about what that is? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, it's an evidence-based plan that's been around, I think, about 30 years. You can do it on your own or take a workshop in it, but it's a booklet that you go through. They have key concepts that you kind of tie your whole wrap around, which are hope, personal responsibility, education, self-advocacy, and support. And those are all areas that we need to incorporate in our lives. And with the wrap plan, you're creating it for yourself. It's all individualized and self-directed. No one's telling you what to do. So you come up with things, your wellness toolbox. So these are things that you need or that help you to feel better. It might be going for a walk, riding a horse, having coffee with friends, doing exercise, working in my garden. But you make big, long lists of those things you can turn to when you can't think of anything that makes you feel well. And, you know, you try to create your wellness toolbox and activities when you are feeling well, because when we feel down, we forget everything. Like there's nothing that brings me joy. And then you look at your wellness toolbox and remember, oh yeah, there are some things that help. Um, you also make a daily plan where you list the things you need to do every day to feel well and stay well. And you follow it. You know, sometimes you want to just not just stop for the day because oh, I don't feel so great today. But then you slide further and further into feeling poorly. And so following your daily action plan, which you create. You also list your stressors. What are the things that kind of push you over the edge that lead you to your breaking point? So you have a clear understanding of what it is that sets you off. Um, we don't always think about that until it happens. And so creating a list can help you either avoid those or know that when they're happening, you need to pull in more wellness tools to keep your hope and your mental wellness as well as it can be. Um, and you also create things about early warning signs that maybe you're not doing so well. For me, it's I increase my eating of carbs or I sit on the couch more. I don't want to talk to people when I'm usually very communicative. When I start noticing my early warning signs, that's a signal to me that I need to step up my wellness plan and my wellness tools so that I'm taking care of myself and that I haven't forgotten me in the whole perspective of life. Um, you also create a crisis plan because there are times when we hit our breaking point and then what, who do we want to help us at that moment? What do we want to be done if we can't make decisions? Because, you know, it could be a physical crisis. Like when I had a kidney mm -hmm. stone and pancreatitis, who takes care of my kid? 
oh makes decisions yeah. for me or a mental crisis where you need to go into a hospital. Who do you want making your decisions? And so having that all in writing that you can give to people you trust helps you to know that no matter what happens to me with my wellness, I'm going to be taken care of. And then you do a post-crisis plan for how to kind of get back to your wellness state and stay there again, because we all go through cycles. Sometimes we feel great and sometimes we feel lousy. That's always going to be the case for humans. It's We never stay the same. And so the wrap kind of gives you a life plan that you can follow and share with your supporters and kind of create your own network of self-care. It sounds like it's something that's so well designed for where many people may be right now, you know, emotionally yes. or, and or physically. So if somebody wanted to find out more about the RAP plan and how they, you know, how they could do that for themselves, is there a, a resource or a reference that they could look to to uh, learn more about it? Yes, there is a website. It is, I believe it's mental health. Let me look it up real quick. But if you look up RAP, W-R-A-P in caps, it'll take you to that. There's also a Facebook page that is just called RAP. You mentioned grounding also, which um, again, may be familiar to some and not to others. Mm -hmm. Can can you talk a little bit about what grounding is and how it works for you? Yeah, grounding is different techniques that basically help us to become more centered when we get panicked or depressed or otherwise, our frontal lobe takes over. And that's when we get into our fight or flight, the reptilian brain. And we need to, we forget our body, basically. We're just living in our brain and that re- automatic response of what can I do? And grounding helps your body to reintegrate with your brain. So you're feeling your body again. You can calm down your heart rate. You can calm your breathing so that you just become more relaxed you're able to re-enter the present rather than just being panic or future oriented. And so your brain starts to work better. Um, You start to calm down, your cortisol levels reduce. And those can be things like counting things in a room, looking at things you can smell, things you can see, things you can hear. So you're engaging all of your bodily senses, which shut off when you're in fight or flight. You can do counted breathing where you breathe in for four, breathe out for four, just over and over again until your breathing starts to regulate on its own. You, some people want to do something more physical, like a little fidgety toy. Those can be used for grounding because you're releasing different brain chemicals when you use those fingers and it can help calm you down. Are there any other strategies that you um, have come to identify as helpful as you're continuing to be a caregiver for your daughter and carry the responsibilities as a full-time employee and Mm full-time caregiver and (laughs) all the other responsibilities that you're carrying. What I'm trying right now, I haven't mastered it yet, but I'm trying is to set a time every day, preferably in the evening where I give myself five to 10 minutes to totally focus on my worries. Go as deep and as painful as I have to think about everything that is freaking me out that has come into my brain that day and just let it go. If I need to cry, scream, or just think of horrible images that I don't want to deal with, but have a timer. And when it's done, I try to shut it off. Okay. That was my worry time. And if a worry comes in during the day or a horrible thought about what could happen to my child, I say, okay, I can worry about this 
at nine o'clock tonight. I have to save it for that time so that I can stay more present. My brain knows we're going to deal with it at some point because it still has to deal with it. Um, but if I have a set time, I know I'm still going to get to do it. But it's more contained than carrying it in my brain all day long and all night long because I'll stay up all night long worrying about it and have insomnia. But having that set period of worry time has helped me just a little bit. It's a really nice idea. Again, I haven't for... mastered it, but I'm, but I'm working on it. <laughs> you also mentioned something earlier that I really wanted to follow up on. You, you mentioned that you are an extrovert and really need to have that direct face-to-face mm-hmm. human, human interaction, um, which has certainly been challenging. Yes, COVID. very. Um, yeah. And I love that creative solution you mentioned even early on with this of driving to Starbucks and at least having that interaction with the barista in the window. How have you been able to meet that need for direct face-to-face human interaction through this? It's been tough because I need not just the Zoom calls, but my energy comes from other people's energy as an extrovert. So I made myself go out every day in my car to find either, again, the Starbucks or a McDonald's, something where I had to go through a drive-through and have at least a tiny conversation with someone else. And I'd try to, you know, give them a little tip. So they felt appreciated as well. And then they'd have a little conversation with me. I got to know them. So some of them knew me by name when I go through the drive-through. So I felt a personal connection, like, oh, there's someone else out there in the world that I really am connecting with, or I'd go for walks in the park and I would just kind of wave at people or smile or play with their dog, just so there was some kind of personal interaction rather than just looking at them. But it's really mostly been with strangers, yeah. you know, especially during the really deep times when we, no one could go out anywhere. It was just people I didn't know, but yeah. other humans like, hey, stay safe, hope you're doing well. Just knowing that there's other people dealing with the same thing, but we can still be optimistic. We can still have positive human interaction when there's especially a lot of chaos and anger and impatience and bitterness when you're driving and people are honking at each other. To have some kind of pleasant interaction with someone just reminds me that humanity is still there. We're all worth saving. Mm -hmm. And despite the differences, we're all still dealing with the same thing and we all have worries and just trying to be a light in the light of whoever I saw and them giving it back to me, if that makes sense. I often think that humans are such an incredibly social species. We really mm-hmm. are. We thrive in connection with others. Yes. Um, we're, we're just designed for that at the most fundamental levels. And so the need to connect, even if, even if we're not extroverted, you know, even if, even if we're an introvert, there's still right. a need. Everybody for kind needs. Yeah. Right. The kind of contact that an an introvert needs, you know, so it's just human. What are some of the lessons that you've learned in the course of this that you'll take forward? One big thing I've learned is to be grateful for everything I have right now. I probably a lot of people are very future focused. I'm always thinking about how it's going to be better in the future. I'll have more money. I'll be able to retire. I'll do this. I'll do that. Instead of being grateful for every single day I wake up and having my daughter 
have the COVID and then me, but hers being worse and thinking I could lose her. Am I actually even thinking about today? Am I making the most of my interactions with her today? Or am I just busy thinking about our vacation two years from now or what I need to do for work? And so I've tried to, what I've done is started a little gratitude journal. And so every day I have to write at least three things that I'm grateful for, for that day. And it can be little tiny things like I got a really great sandwich at the, co at the coffee shop and it tasted fantastic. Or someone let me in on the freeway into the space or I read a really great book and I loved this one line in the book. It doesn't have to be something major, just something I'm grateful for in the present so that I start noticing little things around me rather than always being focused on the future or the past. And forcing myself to really put that into practice showed me how much I don't live in the present. Mm -hmm. And that was a lesson mm -hmm. to me that I need to work on that. Mm -hmm. This could continue. We're going to have another pandemic at some point. It's just life. And so learning how to just live in the moment and not be scared about the future because we can't change it. It doesn't help anything to be scared about it, even though it's super easy to get caught up in it. So I'm trying much harder to just focus on today. Much, much more here and now. Yeah. I hear people talking about making you know, long-term plans, life goals, which I think are important and really valuable. Sure. Um, but at the same time, really finding more of a shift to what's happening here and now and what can I do more in the here and now to make things better. Yeah. Because that's that's what I have, that's what I have more control over. Absolutely. What is a short-term goal? What is something I can meet this month? What is something I can change or have control over right now? Because I don't have control over the world. I don't have any control over a virus, but I have control over how my family works or control over how close I am with my friends or control over how much I take care of my body and my health. Those are the things that I need to focus on. You've mentioned a, a variety of different strategies and techniques um, in, in our conversation. You, you've talked about meditation and you know, we talked about the rap plan earlier, but meditation and grounding and journaling. If people wanted to learn more about some of these things, are there mm -hmm. any places they could go, any resources that you might recommend for people to look into? Um, I use, you know, I won't name off any brands or anything, but I know on, on our smartphones, there's a lot of different apps that just have calming meditations. You can even find them on YouTube where they show just a nature scene and have someone talking you through a meditation. And a lot of them are free. Some you have to pay for, but I'm cheap. So I go for the free ones, but just having that and turning it on. So I have a set time and someone else is talking me through it rather than sitting there by myself. Sarah, I wanted to ask you, when, when you have the full-time work responsibilities and <clears throat> extensive caregiving responsibilities, how do you make time for yourself to do these self-care practices? So again, I, I schedule time that's in my calendar because otherwise I don't do it. And sometimes I have to set a timer, a beeper, so that it beeps and I know that that's Sarah time because otherwise I'll just keep working on through it until three in the morning I'll work and be on the phone with her and her caregivers. You've made a point a number of times in our conversation that I really want to highlight. You've talked about different ways of 
making yourself do the good things that you need to do to be well. That mm-hmm. sometimes we don't feel like it. We don't we yeah. don't have the motivation or the impulse to do something that would be good for us. And so we have to force it or schedule it or refer to a plan that we have and stick to the plan, even though we're not feeling like it. And I think that's just such a, such a great point that um, oftentimes what we feel like doing is the worst thing for ourselves. You know, if, if I'm depressed and I feel like isolating and pulling down the shades and holding yep. up in my room and, and sleeping um, all day and sleeping all day. That's what I feel like doing, mm-hmm. but that's not going to help. And if I have a plan that says, no, I'm going to call a friend or I'm going to go outside for a walk and, and it, and it's forced. It's not what I feel like yes. doing. Yeah. It doesn't always feel good to do it at the moment. Yeah. yeah. It's not until afterward. It reminds me of right. so many times had a, a gym membership and and I don't feel like going to the gym <laughs> mm-hmm. but, you know and afterward I'm glad I went I you know may have enjoyed what I was doing while I was there but I'm always glad afterward but getting there was was forced really hard yes yeah and self-care I think can be a lot like that we have to force it especially at times that we don't feel like it before we wrap up, are there any last thoughts or suggestions that you would have for listeners around self-care? Um, And those are my big ones. But again, I would just say that what's important to me that I often forget is that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to let people know that I'm not doing great at the moment. I think especially as caregivers, we, people sometimes see caregivers as superheroes that never get tired, never feel down, never have hard times. And they all do. We all do. My daughter's staff do. And be allowing yourself to let people know hey, I need some help right now, or I need support, or I just need to vent. It's okay to do that because this is the hardest job to me. I think it's the hardest job in the world, caring for other people. Mm -hmm. And it's not given as much credit as it should be given. And it's okay to be vulnerable and still be a caregiver because that's what makes you a great caregiver is that compassion that comes from being vulnerable. It's your empathy that is your superpower. And you get that from also having your own pain and acknowledging it. And so I'd say part of self-care is just realizing you're human and there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be a superhero all the time. Sarah, thank you very, very much. Um, These are great ideas and I'm sure very helpful. So I appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you for talking with me. And I wish the best for all the caregivers that you're working with. I applaud them. Thank you for, to all of you for what you're doing. Help is here. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health or substance use concerns, contact 1-833-TO-FIND-HELP. This podcast is produced by Advocates for Human Potential and supported wholly or in part through an emergency COVID-19 grant to the Illinois Department of Human Services, Division of Substance Use Prevention and Recovery from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, The sentiments expressed in this podcast are not endorsed by any of these involved entities.